How are we all doing this morning? Good. Doing well? All right. Very excited to be back here joining you all again this morning as we're continuing with part two of our series called The Bottom of the Ninth. If you could take a moment to find your notes outlined and also pass that basket of pins down your row so that everyone has something to write with, that would be fantastic. Well, this morning I'd like to start off a little bit different by asking you guys a question. And the question would be this. How many of you know what this is? called a selfie stick for those of you who don't know. And the next question is, how many of you own one of these said selfie sticks, right? A few of you, I see some hand pumps, fist pumping in the back. It's nice, right? Some people are proud to own selfie sticks. Some people are ashamed that they own selfie sticks, right? Kind of goes both ways there. I remember the first time that I saw a selfie stick being used was when I worked at Disneyland. I was at the Indiana Jones Adventure. I was just outside the building collecting fast passes as people were coming up the ramp. And it was in the middle of cheerleading season, and this massive group of cheerleaders was on the ramp. I remember thinking to myself, this is just ridiculous, right? They're noisy, they're loud, they're making all kinds of sounds. This is going to take forever to get them all through. They're all going to want to ride together. It was just crazy at this moment. And so this lady, whoever was in charge of them, says, hey, I've got a great idea. Before we go in, let's get a picture. Let's get a group shot of everybody all together. And so then I'm thinking, oh, this is great. Now that takes time out of my day because they're going to give me the camera and I'm going to have to take the picture and then they're not going to like the picture that I take, so I'll have to take it again. And it's just this constant cycle that's going to keep going on until I finally get fed up and just force them in the building, right? Well, to my surprise, she reaches into her bag and she pulls out this stick-like thing. And I'm thinking, you know, I've never been a high school cheerleader, so maybe let's take a group picture really means let me beat you with a stick in cheerleading terms, Right? <laughs> So I'm like, I'm really confused, but kind of intrigued at what's going on. And somehow she finagles her camera on the top of it, her phone, and then she stretches this pole out, and they all like get together, and simultaneously, by like some miracle, they all happen to make the exact same face at the exact time. Very similar to this one, right? So they're making this face, and they're like, count to three, and then they take the picture, and they're all looking good in the front, and I'm just like this dumbfounded, confused look on my face in the back of the picture, Right? And so I just remember sitting there and thinking, this is so strange. Like, I've never seen this before. It's, it's weird to me. But when I started thinking about it, the selfie stick is actually a really cool invention. Because a selfie stick, it allows you to truly capture more of the moment that you're in. It helps give you that extra little bit of reach to fully grasp the picture so you can be reminded of everything that was happening. And there have been some amazing selfie stick images that have been taken over the years. And I'm going to show you my top five favorite ones this morning as we start. The first one is taken in Mammoth, um, California. No, that's not me, even though he is ruggedly handsome looking too. Um, this is taken in Mammoth up in uh, John Muir Trail up at uh, 10,000 Lakes. It's a beautiful picture. Granted, he could have taken it with just himself like walking in the background, but that just would kind of lose some of its appeal. But apparently, there's etiquette that says, A, you're not supposed to get the selfie stick in the image of said selfie stick. So this kind of violates the rules right off the bat. But this is taken in Mammoth. The next one's one of my favorite ones. is taken in the Florida Keys. Now, can you imagine how difficult this picture would be with just like a camera in your hand, like trying to grab the turtle and hold it as you're taking the picture? Probably would look nothing like what you see up here. But with the help of a selfie stick, he was able to get this perfect picture of himself and the turtle. Now, selfie sticks are also good for creating perspective, like this next shot. If you want to be kind of creative and fun, you can have cool little things like at a museum, it looks like a T-Rex is getting ready to eat you. 
So there are general pictures that you can take, but there's another level of pictures that are out there of people who are thrill seekers, people who like to take it the next step. Like this gentleman who wanted to prove to everyone that he actually knows how to fly a helicopter. Not at the moment he's taking this picture, but that he knows how to fly a helicopter. Now, would this picture be the same if he just stuck his hand out the window and took the image? Absolutely not. But because he was able to have that extension to get further out, he was able to capture this amazing picture. And this guy is mild compared to the next guys that we're going to look at. These two guys decided to climb to the tallest crane in China and take a picture with their selfie stick. That's where I draw the line, right? Like, I'm okay with turtles and being in a dinosaur, but when it comes to doing things like this, no, I'm done. But these guys, they actually inspired the next two guys to climb to the tallest building in Dubai and take this image. That's ridiculous, right? There's no reason pictures like this should ever exist in the first place, right? But these guys are thrill seekers. They decide we want to get as high as we can and try to capture as much as we can with the scenario that we find ourselves in. Sad story is, though, that one of these two guys unfortunately died on his descent down from this building by slipping and falling. So while selfie sticks can be good, sometimes because you're in that moment of exhilaration and anticipation, it can kind of overwhelm you and make you think differently than you should, kind of disregard some aspects of safety. But selfie sticks in and of themselves are a pretty cool invention because they truly do help you to capture the moment, to remember the good times. And I'm pretty sure that all of us have been somewhere in our life where we said, man, I wish I had my camera. Man, I wish I had my phone or something that I could take a picture of this moment so I could remember who was here and what we did and why we were here. Because if I don't have that, I risk forgetting that this event ever happened. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. Not the idea of selfie sticks, we're done with that, but the idea of capturing the moment and what that truly looks like. Last week, Pastor Larry, he kicked off this series, Bottom of the Ninth, by talking about hope. And we learned that bottom of the ninth moments means moments when you find yourself in darkness, moments when you find yourself in despair, when you're distraught, when you don't know what to do or where to go next or the right answers to say, or if life is going to move on, you've kind of given up hope and you've considered yourself down and out for the count. But you don't have to consider yourself down and out for the count. You see, just as each and every one of us have these dark moments in the bottom of the ninth of our lives, we also have moments of light, moments of good news. And you all know what I'm talking about. It's moments when you ask someone out and they said yes. Moments when you put a bid on a house and you got word back that said it's been accepted. Moments when you went to the doctor and the doctor came back and said, hey, I've got good news back for you. You see, we all have these positive moments of light in our life that sometimes we tend to forget. And I think that the moments of light are just as important as the moments of dark are when it comes to the bottom of the ninth moments of our life. And I want you to write this down. This is going to be your first fill in the blank on your outline. And it's so important because our tendency is to doubt in the dark what we learned in the light. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. Our tendency is to doubt in the dark what you've learned, what you know to be true in the light. And this is our human instinct. This is natural human behavior. Perfect example is when you're a kid and your parents are tucking you into bed and it's late at night. And it says, hey, are you okay? Do you need anything? And you're like, no, it's fine. 
says, okay, well, we're going to leave, and you're going to be all by yourself. Are you sure you're okay? They're like, yes, I'm going to be fine. We're going to turn the lights out. Are you sure you're going to be okay? Yes, everything is fine, Mom. Please get out of my room, right? And then they finally walk to the door, and they turn the light off, and they close the door, and then what happens? right? Monsters in the closet, or the cookie monster, for example. Monsters in the closet, monsters under the bed. You've got ghosts in the corner, spiders crawling on the ceiling, and you freak out. You start yelling and screaming, mom, come back, right? Or dad, come back. And they come in, and they turn on the light, and then what happens? It's gone. Every single thing is gone. And it's so funny how our mind works because we tend to always forget what we know to be true in the light. Every single thing that we know is true in the light just vanishes when we find ourselves in moments of the dark. And so if we're going to survive the bottom of the night, the moments of our life, we need to start remembering the moments of light, the moments of times when God gave us good news, when he did something good for us and helped us push through and helped us survive. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God, where we have moments of dark and we have moments of light. And if we truly want to be ready, we need to remember these things. But so often, we forget the moments of light that God puts in our life. Or we'll say, yeah, I remember that God was there, that God did something, but I'm not quite exactly sure all the details. I'm pretty sure he showed up because God shows up, but you know, he may have had a small part in everything that I was going through. And the irony of it all is that we tend to forget the good things that God has done, but we never forget the things that God hasn't done, or that maybe God says that he won't do, where we are so prone to forget his faithfulness, but always remember his failures. And we even take it a step further and start taking credit for the things that God does in our lives. Oh, I got the job because I'm good at selling myself. Oh, I got the house because I made a good deal. Oh, I'm in the relationship because I got game, because I'm good looking, right? And you start taking the credit for all these things, and God's like, no, 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 I had a pretty big part in all of that. Now, I was involved every step of the way, but you're choosing to forget that. You're choosing to brush straight over these things. And then when we find ourselves in the moments of darkness, we even take it a step further and say, God, how dare you? where we blame God for every negative and every dark thing that's ever happened in our life, even if he is not even remotely responsible. Because it's easier for us to blame him than it is for us to blame ourselves. But you see, God says no. He says, yes, the moments of darkness, this bottom of the ninth, you need to know that the dark doesn't have to be so dark. Because there's light that can exist in the darkest of your moments. And I want you to write this in as your next fill in the blank. The light can actually bring hope into the darkness. The good news, the positive things that God has done, doesn't matter what darkness you find yourself in, his light shines brighter than anything else in this world. And he can restore you and give you hope even when you feel that you're down and you're out and there's no point in continuing on. So this morning, I want us to, to read a story about a group of people who are constantly forgetting the light moments of God, the things that God would do good for them and then immediately forget about them. And most of you know who I'm already talking about. It's a group of people called the Israelites. And they had this amazing history that's full of God showing up in amazing and incredible ways, time and time again. But time and time again, they forget the ways that God shows up. They continue to look over the things that he's done. For example, the Israelites found themselves in slavery in Egypt. 
They're under this pretty strict rule. They're working all the time under harsh conditions. They're miserable, so they start crying out to God. God, help us. God, save us. God, free us. God, redeem us. God, give us new life. And God hears their prayers. He says, I am faithful. I'm going to provide a moment of light for you. So what does he do? He sends these 10 plagues into Israel. He sends these 10 plagues to radically change the land in order to set them free to go. But in these plagues, I mean, you've got locusts and gnats and darkness and blood and death all around you. And they're complaining every step of the way. This is weird, God. It's like, I don't want locusts in my food. This is, this is crazy. Why would you be doing this? Why can't you just free us? So God, he worked on Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh decided to let them go. So then they start packing up their belongings and I'm sure they're like, we've got too much stuff that we have to carry. We don't want to walk through the desert. We're just happy being here. God's like, but didn't you just cry out and ask me to f- set you free? So he sets them free, and as they're starting their journey, they're walking, they come across their next obstacle called the Red Sea. And they get to this, the Red Sea, and it's this massive obstacle that's right smack dab in front of them. And they're looking at it saying, there's no way that we're going to cross this. But you know what God did? God was still faithful. Did God let them down? No. Did God let them drown? Absolutely not. But God parted the seas and allowed them to walk across. And they walk across and they get to the other side, probably thinking, hey, that's kind of cool. But now, what's next? Now we're wandering through the desert. We're hot. We're tired. We don't want to walk anymore. We're hungry. It would be better for us to be in slavery back in Egypt than to be right where we're at right now. But did God ever once leave them even as they're wandering through the desert for 40 years? Absolutely not. God led them by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. And when they were hungry, they would wake up the next morning and find manna. They'd find bread and quail as far as the eye could see for them to be able to eat. But they still complained. Every step of the way, they complained and they forgot about the amazing things that God was doing in their lives time and time again. And I think a lot of us are like the Israelites. I think a lot of us can learn from the story that we're about to read because we're similar in their shoes where God provides and he provides and he provides and he gives you light and he gives you hope in the darkest of times and yet we forget it. We just move past it like it's nothing. So the Israelites have this this crazy story and this morning we're gonna kind of walk through it because God says, you know what? I'm tired of you forgetting. I'm tired of you just brushing it off like it's not important, like nothing is happening. So we're going to change things up, God says. We're going to do something different so that way you never doubt that I will show up and provide light in your darkest moments. In this story, it comes from the very end of the 40-year period when they're in the desert. And they can see the promised land. They're finally there. They're almost ready to get into it. They're excited because it's what the last 40 years have led up to. And then they come across their next big obstacle called the Jordan River. And it looks like this. And they're sitting there and they're stumped. And they're thinking, man, it would sure be nice if God actually helped us for once. It would sure be great if, you know, God showed up and actually provided for us because he's never done it in our lives before. And God's like, are you kidding? Did you see what I did? I got you out of slavery in Egypt. Oh, wait, that's right. You forgot. Oh, you came up to the Red Sea and I I parted the water so you could cross it. Do you remember that? Oh, wait, you don't. 
Do you remember when you were in the desert and you were complaining because you were hungry and you were lost and you were confused and you were scared and I provided every single time for you, even when you turned your back on me? Oh, wait, you don't remember it. See, God says, I need to change things up. I need to do something different. So as they find themselves at the Jordan River here, God is going to show up in a miraculous way. And we're going to read it together, this passage, because if I were just to tell you this story, you may not believe what God's about to do. And we're going to read it from the author himself to see the amazing transformation that takes place and what God calls them to do. So if you look with me in Joshua chapter 3, verse 15, starting off, it says this. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Now we're going to pause there real quick. The harvest season is probably late May, early April. You've got Mount Hermon, which had a big snowpack. It's all melted and it's come down. It's the rainy season of harvest. So the Jordan River itself is probably at minimum 10, 12 feet deep by about 300 feet wide. That's its base point. But it says here that the Jordan was at flood stage. So it's even bigger than this. It's expanding its territory. It's this massive body of water, this huge obstacle in front of them. What are they going to do? Let's continue reading. It says, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zerthan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Reba was completely cut off. You see, when the priests got there, when they got there and their feet touched the edge of the water, this miraculous thing happened. The water immediately receded down and built up this massive wall on this side. And when they looked all the way upstream towards the Dead Sea where the water is flowing down from, it's completely bone dry. If they were to go down to the river's bank or the river's edge, they wouldn't find it because it's dry ground. There's no water whatsoever in this area. This massive wall is put up right here, giving them a dry path to cross over on. Isn't that impressive? Isn't that pretty amazing what God can do? And so in verse 16, it continues on. It says, so the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. Not they swam, not they were taken away by rip currents or by the water. They walked over and they walked on dry ground over. Now we don't know how God did it, but he did do it. And in fact, we know that God sent probably close to 2 million people over the Jordan River. He massively moved the water so these people could be saved, so they could be safe and find refuge. But that's not the biggest miracle he's going to do. Check this out. Let's keep reading. It says, The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan, and they stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing on dry ground. So you got this picture of this big, massive wall of water, and it's completely dry on this side. Everything seems to be going through. And finally, the Israelites, they get there, and they say, oh my goodness, finally God has shown up. Finally, God is faithful to get me across safely. God's like, I've been here all along. You just haven't seen it. You just haven't remembered it. You need to start remembering these things. You need to start taking stock of what I've already done for you. God says, I'm providing light moment after light moment, good news after good news, miracle after miracle, but you keep forgetting it. 
And see, you and I, we do the exact same thing in our lives. We find ourselves constantly in the cycle. For instance, when you're a kid and you're at home, you hate living with your parents. So you long for the day in which you can get out. You go into college and you get up into a dorm room and you're with a bunch of people and you're like, finally, I'm away from my parents. And then you realize this situation stinks because I actually have to pay for my own stuff now, right? This is terrible. I don't want to be here. I want to have my own place. So then you get an apartment and as you're living in your apartment, you think, well, this is great, but you know, I, I want something bigger. So you go into a townhome and you're in a townhome and you're saying, well, it's about time for me to get ready and, uh, to get married and have kids. So I need to get a house now. So then you move into a house and you're thinking, finally, everything's going to settle down. But it's only a matter of time before you think, I need a bigger kitchen. I need a bigger garage. I need a bigger bathroom. See, we find ourselves in this constant, perpetual, never-ending cycle where we want, we get, and then we want something else. And we are so ungrateful and disrespectful to God for the things that he has already given to us because we immediately forget about them once we've gotten them. And we only think about the dark moments, about what's next, how is it going to benefit me in my life, rather than taking stock of what God has already blessed me with, what God has already shown light into my life with. God's saying, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to so easily move on. I want you to remember these things in your life. I want you to take stock of what I'm going to do for you. It's almost as if God's saying, I've already parted the seas in your life. I've already freed you from slavery. I've already given you provision and safety and health every step of the way in your life. So why are you forgetting? Why are you doubting? Because the dark doesn't have to be so dark. It's time for you to see the light of Jesus Christ. It's time for you to see the good things that he's doing for you every single day of your life. But God notices this, and he's going to command them. So he says, I know that I'm telling you this, but I also know that you're prone to forget. I know that you're just going to lose all of this in a second. So we're going to change things up, God says. Because I know that it's just going to leave you as soon as we do it. So I'm going to have you physically do something for me. So God's going to command Joshua and the Israelites to do something. Let's pick back up in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, when the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you will stay tonight. God's saying, I'm tired of you forgetting, so we're going to change things up. I want you to physically go into the middle of the Jordan, not to the river bank, not to the river's edge, but right where the priests are standing with the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to go right in that very same spot. To which I'm sure some of the Israelites are looking at their buddies and they see this massive wall of water like, yeah, dude, totally, you should go. That's not sketchy or anything, right? Dude, this is the perfect job for you. Just go down there, grab it, you'll be safe. Like, you're a better swimmer anyway, right? But no, it says immediately they obeyed. Immediately they did what God had asked them to do. Let's pick back up in the next part of this verse. It says, if I can find my spot here. Here we go. It says, in the, I'm sorry. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of Israelites to serve as a sign among you. It's not grab a pebble. It's not grab a stone, grab a rock. It's literally grab a boulder for your shoulder. 
I want you to go and find the biggest rock, the biggest stone, the biggest boulder that you can find and pick it up, put it on your shoulder and march it all the way back to the place where you're going to camp, the place where you're going to spend the night. Now, most of us think that's just weird. (laughs) Why would God ever want somebody to do something like that? That seems painful. But God had a very specific reason for it, and it's such an amazing specific reason. Let's see this. It says, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, any of you who've ever been around children know that they're prone to ask the why questions. Why are these rocks here? Why are they so big? How did they get here? What purpose do they serve? Who made the rocks? Why are they this color? What material are they made of, right? It keeps going on and on and on. And God knew that this was a problem even back then. (laughs) So he writes about it in scripture. He says, check this out. I want you to do it because you're going to experience a moment of darkness in your life where things may not be going good. And then you're going to be walking and your kids are going to say, why is that there? But you're going to finally have something that you can point to, that you can look to as a concrete reminder, no pun intended, a concrete reminder to show you that God was faithful. That in the midst of fear, of doubt, of panic, of worry, of uncertainty, that God showed up. That God was faithful to provide and he gave hope in the midst of darkness. That God cut the waters off before the Ark of the Covenant to get them safe passage. And it continues on. It says, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones, they're to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. See, God says, this is some pretty simple stuff, but the problem is I know you're going to forget it. I know that you're just going to glaze over this, so I want you to do something different. I want you to have some physical, tangible thing that you can always point to, that you can always hold on to, that you can look at to daily remind you of my faithfulness that even in the midst of the darkest of darks, at the deepest part of the bottom of the ninth, when you feel like you've lost all hope, that you can look to this thing and you can point to it and say, my God is faithful. And you can look to it and say, God, even though I know that things are terrible right now, I'm not gonna move. Like this rock, I'm gonna stay firmly planted. God, I know that I shouldn't survive, but I did. God, I know I shouldn't have been protected, but I was. God, I know I shouldn't have been provided for, but you did. And God, no matter what darkness the world throws at me, I can look every single day at this thing and be reminded of your love for me, of your faithfulness towards me, and of how you never let me go, how you're there every single step of the way, giving me hope when I find myself in the midst of the darkness. So the question I have for you this morning is this. What is your reminding monument? I want you to write that down. What is your reminding monument? What is it in your life that you have that you can look to and say, God, I know that I am struggling so much right now. God, I've given up hope. I'm afraid. I'm doubting. I don't know what the next point in my life is. But what is it that you can look to as a reminder of what God has already done to know that God will still continue to do it? He can still continue to push on because God says, don't doubt. Don't worry, don't fret, I got this. You just need to remember that I've already been there every single step of the way with you, walking you through every single thing. I don't want you just to remember, I want you to memorialize it, make a monument of it, a physical sign that you can see every single day. 
You know, for some of you, maybe it's a place that you drive by on your way to work or your way home. For some of you, maybe it's a verse that you've held on to. You've committed to memory because it's so important to you. Maybe for some of you, it's a person where you didn't think that you could have a kid and then you found out you couldn't have a child. But lo and behold, you did have a child. And it is there because of God. Maybe for some of you, it's an item. I mean, that's why they sell souvenirs, right? Maybe for some of you, it's a journal. I know some of the guys are like, Psh, no, right? But maybe it's a journal because when you write down these interactions between you and God, pages don't forget, but humans do, right? Maybe for some of you, it's a song. I mean, that's why couples have songs, right? You're at your favorite restaurant and Don't Stop Believing by Journey comes on. You're like, yeah, that's where it's at, right? You know, you, you have those moments. Or maybe you and your boo don't have a song, right? Maybe it's, you know, it's you're slamming screen doors, sneaking out late, tapping on windows. You're on the phone talking real slow because it's late and your mama don't know. Or at least that's what Taylor Swift says because she says that can be your song if you don't have a song. Maybe it's a worship song. Maybe it's something that you have that really expresses how you feel or how you relate towards God. Maybe it's any one of these things. But what is it that you're memorializing to remind you of the light of what God has already done? Because those are the moments you never want to forget. And those are the moments that shine so brightly, even in the darkest of darks. This morning as I close, I want to tell you what my monument moment is. My monument moment is a very specific place. It comes from Joshua Tree National Park, a specific place called Quail Mountain. Most of you know that I'm a rock climber, and if you didn't know, that explains why I'm skinny and tall and lengthy and awkwardly shaped, right? So I'm a rock climber by nature, and I love just being outdoors and just climbing. And I was out there climbing with two other buddies of mine, and I was the middle climber. There was a lead climber that was above me, and then our tail climber who was all the way down below us. And we're climbing up, this isn't us, by the way, even though he is ruggedly handsome as well. Um, we're climbing about 100, 150 feet up in the air on the face of this rock. And we're free climbing. For those who don't know what free climbing is, it's when you just, you grab a rope, you attach it to your back, and then you just start climbing the rock. And then once you're up about 15, 20 feet, you put an anchor in the wall, you secure it, and then you attach your rope to that anchor, and you start free climbing up another 15, 20 feet. So that way, if you as the lead climber were to fall, you would only slip to the last anchor point. Well, the top, the lead guide sets all the anchor points. The middle guy is securing all the anchor points. And then the bottom guy is removing all of the anchor points. So that way you get to keep all of your equipment as you're traveling. So we're up there 100, 115 feet climbing. And I am the middle guy. And my lead climber is about 15, 20 feet ahead of me. And he grabs. But the way that he grabs the rock, because it was brittle, it just snapped off in his hand, causing him to completely lose his grip, sending him flying back from the rock. And the next anchor point is right where I'm at. So I just remember hearing this sliding slash grunt slash awkward scream of fear and panic and looking up and it just, in a blink of an eye, it happened because gravity moves faster than anything that I could think of. And I just remember looking up and just seeing him come with his full weight and as I was readjusting our anchor point so it wasn't fully in the wall. And he comes and he hits me and it rips our anchor point out. So now we're both flying through the air. He's dropping 30, 35 feet. I'm dropping 15 feet. And I just remember as I'm falling, my rope has grabbed me and it's pulling me around so I can't see the rock anymore. But I do see my lead climber as he comes down and he smashes headfirst into the rock and he knocks himself out. And I remember thinking to myself as I'm falling, I sure hope to God that our tail climber has not removed that anchor point. Because if he has moved that anchor point, it's over. That's it. 
And I remember as I got tangled up, I remember slamming back first into the side of the rock, giving me severe back pains. And I remember as I spun around on the rock, suddenly I stopped and I was looking face to face with the anchor, the last anchor point holding us all in and watching it slowly crack out of the wall. But God was a God who provided. God is a God who was faithful because the way that the, my rope had fallen, it had attached over a rock and it had wedged into a crack and the weight of where the rope was wedged into the rock held the weight of all three of us. You know, for me, that's my monument moment. That's a moment when I can look at it and say, I should have died that day. Things should have been drastically different in my life. But that was the day that my God parted the water so I could safely walk. That was the day that my God freed me from slavery. That was the day that my God gave me provision and safety. And I want to always remember that day, that place, because that is the brightest light that's ever shown in my life. The point that my God went and died so I could live. That my God sacrificed himself so that I could freely walk and live and breathe. And it's a daily reminder of no matter what I'm facing in my life, no matter what doubt or fear or obstacles I have against me, that my God will show up because he's done it before and I know that he will do it again. And so as we close, I just want you to think about that and to think about what is it in your life that's your monument moment because God doesn't want you to forget. God doesn't want you just to move on when you find yourself in the darkness. He says, no, I want you to have a concrete memorial that you can look to every single day and know and rest assured that I am there. And I left some space at the bottom of your outline for you to be able to write what that moment is. But once again, just like the Israelites, we are prone to forget. Maybe some of us are prone to throw these away when we get home. So I wanna take it a next step further. I wanna help give you a monument this morning. When you leave and you go out the doors in the courtyard, you're gonna find a big table with a bunch of rocks. They're river rocks that look like this. I'm sorry, I couldn't afford boulders for everyone. But they're river rocks for everyone, right? And what I want you to do is there's two images out there that are gonna prompt you what to do. But I want you to write the Joshua 4 passage on one side. And on the back side, I want you to write what your monument moment is. And then take this and put it in your car, put it on your nightstand or in your kitchen or your bathroom, someplace where you'll see it every single day to use as a stepping stone, once again, no pun intended, as a stepping stone to help remind you of the faithfulness of God and what God will constantly do in your life. Because he says, I have never left your side and I never will. And even in the darkest of dark, rest assured that it doesn't have to be so dark because I am the light. But the question is, are you willing to take that next step to write down and to remember and to constantly look every single day and say, God, I trust in you. Would you pray with me? Father, we just, God, we tell you we're sorry so many times that we've forgotten. God, we forget way more than we ever remember. And God, no matter what's going through any of our lives, you have done more for us than we could ever recount God, I love that you're a God who's so specific and so wise that you know we're prone to forget. But God, you don't condemn us for it. You help us. God, you say, let me help you figure out how you won't forget. God, I pray that we would be people that are just as obedient as Joshua was. God, that we would go, that we would find something, that we would use a rock, whatever it may be, God, that we would make something to remind ourselves that we can point to it in the moments when we're tempted to forget. God, ultimately, the greatest thing that we have to point to, every single one of us, is the cross and the empty tomb. 
the greatest person we have to point to is Jesus, who became human so that we could know you. And God, I pray that we'll never forget that past. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to love you back. And I pray that we'll never forget what you've done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.